The last speaker for tonight um, is Dr. Theresa MacDonald, um, who we actually had huge doubts about whether she would make it here because she got stuck delivering, you know, babies that got stuck. But <laughs> she got them out. It's a good ending to the story, to the initial story. And um, my, my, what I was going to do, because we were like, well, oh, Theresa's, oh, she's minutes away. I, don't I was just going to start reading facts about Theresa and just continue until she arrived. So... We'll just, we'll just get going. Yeah, so keep walking towards the stage and I'll stop when you get here. Um, Therese MacDonald is no stranger to science, being a trainee in obstetrics and gynaecology. She's also no stranger to performing, having been part of a sketch comedy troupe at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. She also played Liesl in the Plenty Valley Rangers production. No, I've got more, got more. <laughs> On the stage. <laughs> of The Sound of Music, in which Rolf had a cold sore so the kiss wasn't real. No. Not real. <laughs> Um, she was also in a production of Fiddler on the Roof where she fell, split her lip, requiring plastic surgery. <laughs> Once, just for the spirit of competition, she ate 69 chicken nuggets. No, 58. In a, oh. <laughs> 58 chicken nuggets. Well, lucky you're here. And she hates bananas. Teresa McDonald. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for that thrilling... Fact file. I do. I do hate bananas. I did rush out of work and in Geelong, and I can tell everyone where all the speed cameras are on the road from here in Geelong. I think that I managed to get just under 100 for all those bridges. Um, and yes, I am an ONG trainee, which means you're in for a feast of talk about vaginas. <laughs> no, I would not do that to you. I instead am going to speak to you about one of the pinnacles, I think, of medical history and scientific history, which happens to be part of obstetrics and gynaecology, and it's more on the obstetric side, and there's no vaginas involved. But I'll try and sneak some in if I can. <laughs> so what I'm going to speak to you about today is what used to be a plague, an absolute plague to the world. Tens of thousands of babies would die every year. In, the, in America alone, back in the pre-60s, pre-50s, early 1900s, so, you know, relatively near past, not, you know, centuries and centuries ago, we're looking at probably hundreds of thousands of babies that were dying worldwide. And a series of events has led us to basically eradicate this disease. It's not fully eradicated, which is fun for me because when it does happen, it's still exciting from a statutory point of view. But <laughs> not so much for the parents, but don't worry, I'll talk about what we can do these days. But also, um, it, it, it's essentially taken what used to cause, you know, hundreds of thousands of fetal deaths right down to a very small number in the developed world. And it is a series of events, a series of, of uh, experiments and discoveries which have led to this. And so I'm just going to touch on a few of them um, and the ways that we can do things now, which I think when these people first discovered this problem back in the early 19... or the late 1930s they probably would just be flabbergasted to know how far we've come from there in such a short amount of time. So what I'm talking about is a disease called rhesus isoimmunisation. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with what, so I'm just going to break it down low, go sick with the hardcore lay terms <laughs> to really give you a background of what this disease is because it totally blows my mind. This is crazy awesome science, all right? I'm going to use myself as an example because I am one of the lucky 15% of Caucasian women who is rhesus negative. I'm sorry, I know. 
You can give me pity later. I will have to endure lots and lots of injections through all my pregnancies. And I also do shit myself every time I get a period. And I'll explain to you why throughout the course of this talk. <laughs> Basically, because I do not carry the Reese's D gene, and my husband does, if I get pregnant and my baby is po positive, right, so I'm A negative, this baby's going to be positive, my blood sees my baby's blood as foreign. Dun, 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 dun. My blood will totally freak out at that foreign antibody, antigen and make heaps of antibodies against that. That's okay for the first baby, because usually the first baby stays in its own little uterus for a while, doesn't cause much bleeding till the end of the pregnancy, and escapes unscathed. But the second baby is going to be like totally unaware. Second Reese's positive baby is going to be in the uterus, and all my antibodies are going to be like, look at this invader, totally cut sick at it and kill its blood. Okay, and that baby will become anemic and that baby could die. And that's what used to happen all the time. And all of these poor rhesus negative women who didn't know they were rhesus negative because they didn't have the test back then, they would have baby after baby after baby, stillborn, stillborn babies or born extremely anemic and jaundiced and then die. And no one knew why until 1939. Case series one. A young woman, 25 in fact, younger than me. Why was she having babies at 25? There was no TV. <laughs> she has a stillborn baby. As I've mentioned, it's her second baby. First baby, the one that actually gave her the antibodies, escaped unharmed. Second baby, stillborn, has been attacked by the antibodies that the, the blood has made against the first baby. The mother bleeds a huge amount. And back in those days, women died of this all the time. It can still happen. That's why you shouldn't do home birth. But that's another talk for a later time. <laughs> anyway, this lady bleeds so much that she has a transfusion. The lady is O, blood group O. Her husband is blood group O. So he very kindly donates his blood. That is very lovely of the husband. She gets the husband's blood and has a massive transfusion reaction. They're like, what is the deal? They're both blood group O. And that is when these two guys, Philip Levine, who is an immunohematologist in, the new, in New York, and this other dude, Rufus Stetson, they came up with this idea that the mother had been exposed to something in the husband's blood via the fetus and therefore created antibodies to that foreign, foreign antigen, that foreign protein. And that when exposed to that blood again through the transfusion, that's when her body reacted. And that was the first idea that fe a fetus could expose a woman to something foreign from her partner. That's back in 1939. OK, great. We've got an idea. It takes years and years and years for that idea to ferment and for tests to develop and for the rhesus gene to be, the rhesus antigen to be well identified and to have tests to identify it. Then there came this idea, what can we do to stop it? Still, we, they knew what was happening then. They knew what was happening in the 40s and the 50s, but there was no way to really cure it. Then this English dude, Ronald Finn, he proposed the idea of what if we could mop this up? 
they realised that probably the mother was getting exposed to the baby during the delivery, especially if it's some, some hardcore forceps or something. Whoa. And um, I just did one of those today. He was beautiful. <laughs> and he floated the idea of like an antibody to mop up that abnormal blood before the mother's immune system could see it. And he, pro he proposed that in a conference in 1960. At the same time, there was a group of guys in New York City, and this is where most of this research happened. And they included an obstetrician and gynaecologist called Dr. Vincent Frieda, and a few other doctors, Dr. John Gorman, and also this cool pharmacology person. So he sort of worked for essentially like Pfizer of today, right? And they deduced that they could give prophylactic antibodies to try and mop up all of the fetal blood so that then the mother didn't create those antibodies before the next pregnancy. So that was their idea. No, at first, no one wanted to fund it, but this William Pollock, who worked at a pharmaceutical company, he's like, I can, I can do this for you. And he used the technology at that company to fractionate the blood to get the anti, anti, antibody to give. And then they also just got a whole heap of positive blood. So then they did this really ethical experiment. <laughs> Back in the 60s, there were some volunteer prisoners. <laughs> I think it's an oxymoron. Oxymoron. What's the word? Oxymoron, yeah. It's like, so these volunteer prisoners who were at the Sing Sing prison in New York City, um, and they would pick out all the rhesus negative ones and give them an injection of blood, and their hypothesis was that they would get, then give the anti-D and see if they sort of converted and created antibodies or not. The aim being that they wouldn't, that that, that anti-D would mop up all of that antigen before the immune system could have a response. At first, their idea was, we'll give it, you know, on the Monday, we'll come back 24 hours after giving the positive blood, and we'll give them the anti-D. But it was a warden at the prison who totally changed history forever. Because he's like, guys, 24 hours is way too predictable. The prisoners will figure it out. And they're like, oh, gosh, well, we can't just rock up 24 hours later then. And then they thought, oh, what if a woman delivers on a Friday? She won't get any anti-D till Monday, because no one works Saturday and Sunday shifts. <laughs> well, that's changed. Anyway. They figured out that maybe it would be a good idea to try and wait the three days for that weekend gap. So they, that's what they did. They, they randomised the, the prisoners to either treatment group or control group. They injected them all with human positive blood. Again, ethical. I guess we didn't know about sort of bloodborne diseases so much back then. And then they, three days later, would give it a shot of anti-D to the treatment group. And they would compare the two groups who would actually develop antibodies against the positive blood. And plenty of them did in the, the control group, but in the treatment group, none of them did. The anti-D blocked the creation of that antibody against the positive blood in every single one of the treated prisoners. And that is why, to this day, we still say, give the anti-D within a 72-hour window from that experiment of thinking, oh, Monday to Friday. And so that's actually the current practice. If someone has a baby, their baby turns out to be positive, the mother's negative, we give them the anti-D within a 72-hour window and we say, that's great, you'll be covered for your next pregnancy. So that was one of the great discoveries. And essentially, now what we do is we give anti-D at 28 weeks, 
to mop up any little bleeds that have happened that no one knows about, again at 34 weeks and again at the time of delivery. And in doing so, essentially, rhesus isoimmunisation is a rarity now. The second thing that we that I'd like to talk about tonight is treatment of the disease. There are still women who don't get their prophylactic anti-D or who, like me, every time I get a period, I think this is a miscarriage that I didn't know I was pregnant and I'm sure that I've zero converted, converted on that one single, you know, period. It's just a period, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> what, what about those babies? They're still going to be affected. There are women who are isoimmunised. They do have antibodies. And they ha- if they become pregnant with a positive blood group baby, those antibodies will see the baby as foreign and attack the blood in that baby. So what we can do these days is we can actually transfuse babies um, while they're still in utero. The first successful transfusion was actually performed back in 1963. Now, this is before ultrasound was a huge commodity. And so they used to do this just by using a bit of, let's do an X-ray, see, figure out kind of where the baby is on that. You know, babies move, but anyway. And then put some rods and things and maybe inject something to make the baby stop moving and we'll just sort of shove some blood into where we think the baby's belly is and some of it will go inside the baby and then the baby will take that blood from its belly and put it into its bloodstream and it will be okay. And it actually worked. (laughs) So the idea came from this guy called Sir William Lilly and he actually was working in New Zealand at the time and he saw that there was this visiting fellow was coming from Africa and he was talking about children that had severe sickle cell anemia. So they're very sick with this anemia and these children would receive infusions of blood or transfusions of blood into their peritoneal cavity, just straight into the tummy, around, outside the bowel, Um, And so this Sir William Lilly postulated that you could use the same technique for babies and that the blood that you inject into the tummy would get withdrawn into the blood stream and therefore provide helpful red blood cells to those babies. And, And he was right. And it's a technique that's still used today. As time's gone on and ultrasound has completely revolutionised obstetric medicine, uh, you can probably, you know, you can do a lot of things from ultrasound that they couldn't do back then. Now we would actually, if babies are really small, sort of 15, 16, 17 weeks, put it into their tummies. But once they get bigger, we inject it directly into the, into the umbilical cord, into those tiny veins and arteries. So it is quite amazing medicine. Um, and then the last thing that I wanted to talk about was another way that ultrasound has revolutionised this particular topic. So... Once the babies are being attacked with all those bad antibodies, some of them will do okay. It sort of depends on how much antibody there is, how long they're exposed for, whether they're making the mother's amount of antibodies go up by having little bleeds and things. Um, And we didn't used to have much way of knowing whether affected babies were severely anemic or not, except for when they became what we call hydropic and they're in cardiac failure and they've got lots of fluid pockets that you can see on ultrasound all around. And that's kind of too late. You're looking at babies that are pretty sick when you get to that point. So what we used to do was... I say we, like I'm an obstetrician of the past. (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) What they used to do was 
and amniocentesis. So essentially putting in a needle right into the uterine cavity, taking out some of the fluid and checking the bilirubin amount in that, which is the breakdown product of the blood. So if they say that these blood cells are getting broken down so much by the mother's antibodies, you'll have a high bilirubin level. And so this is a pretty invasive test that they would perform every time they wanted to check if a baby was anemic or not. But then this really clever dude, Mari, had this idea, what else happens when a baby's anemic? Yes, they get a build-up of bilirubin everywhere because these red blood cells break right down. But also, they've got way less cells. And way less cells is a bit like Victoria Parade, not in peak hour. <laughs> so in peak hour, you've got Victoria Parade, it's car parked. That's the same as the red blood cells in a really healthy baby. Those red blood cells are just cruising really slowly through all the arteries in the body. If you've got like three o'clock traffic, 3 a.m. I mean, we're talking hardly any cars. Those cars can go very fast, similar to my trip from Geelong. <laughs> so essentially, what we're saying is, if we look up at a particular artery in that baby's brain and see how fast those cells are travelling, you actually get an idea of how anemic that baby is. It's a huge call, but it totally works. So what we do these days, instead of sticking a needle in to check the bilirubin level every couple of weeks and then deciding when we're going to try and transfuse this baby, we just monitor with ultrasound and we look at a particular artery inside the brain and check the flow of blood, red blood cells. And if those red blood cells are going like the clappers, 3 a.m. style Victoria Parade, we know that that baby doesn't have that many red blood cells and they're the ones that we're going to go through the risky procedure of actually injecting blood into their small, small tummies or into their cords. And he did that by... he would In the paper that he published back in 2000, it's a relatively new science, um, he would compare... He, did, he actually tested the haemoglobin level on every single baby that he checked as well as the flow in their cord and figured out what is the cutoff? Where does that baby become anemic? And now we can capture 100% of anemic babies with ultrasound with only a 12% false positive rate. So 12% of the babies that we transfuse maybe don't need it, so it's an unnecessary risk, but it's a lot less riskier than sticking a needle into that uterus week after week after week. So don't you think that that's the best science ever? <laughs> I do. <laughs> and so in summary, what happens now is that all women are tested at their first visit to find out their blood group. If they're negative and all, tested, all women are checked for funny antibodies that they may or may not already have, if they're negative, they get the anti-D at 28, 34 and at delivery. And if they actually are isoimmunised, they get monitored with that with those um, ultrasounds and then transfused. And with all of that, hardly any babies die anymore when it used to be hundreds of thousands of babies a year. So well done, science. <laughs>